Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 484 with Zachary Oaks of Profile Coffee. I guess it's it's built around more than just giving you something that tastes great. It's, it's about that story and that connection and, hey, we're, we're actually doing something really powerful here, not just buying the best of what's on offer at any one time. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, and time and money saved. That's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire account's payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval c terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic we are recording and with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest zach oaks zach my man are you feeling unstoppable today I sure am. Let's, let's, let's do this. Yes, and a quick shout out to my friends in Melbourne, uh, Stefan and Sophia Salties, for making this connection happen. Uh, hailing from Melbourne, Australia, Zach Oaks holds a Bachelor's of Business Law from Monash University, but swears he'll never have a desk job. Today, Oaks is the roaster barista, coffee curator, and chief playmaker at Profile Specialty Coffee in Melbourne. Uh, so I can't wait to dive into your story, Zach, to get uh you know all the goods about who who you are and what makes you you but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you have for us yeah i mean mine's pretty simple it's just um you know do everything with honesty and integrity uh and sort of a, a lot of that is um based around coffee as an industry and how um we'll dive into it a lot deeper but how there is a lot of bullshit um so for us um, and for me and everything we do at Profile is just, you know, maintaining those two really strong values and it just leads every decision that we make, basically. Yeah, man. It's not just coffee. I feel like uh, for the longest time, we, as humanity, just got in this real BS. We went in this BS direction where everything was a load of BS. And it was like we we're trying to sell something, sell a story, sell an angle, create a concept. But today what you're seeing that the most successful restaurants out there in, in, in cafes and businesses really are the most transparent, uh, open, honest organizations that are just existing to serve and to do the right thing because it, today it's harder and harder, uh, you know, to keep secrets. So the, those who are 
the purest, honest, most open uh, are seeming to do the right thing. Are you noticing the same trend? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think like, um, like I'll, I'll speak specifically for coffee, but we sort of, I think that, you know, they talk about three waves of coffee and um, like the, the first wave is just, you know, um, you know, crappy percolated coffee made on stove tops and then it sort of progressed and Starbucks came along and we had this um, second wave of coffee where cappuccinos existed and um, there were all these drink modifiers. And then the next wave was a third wave. And from my point of view, we start to sort of think about um, people injecting passion and, and being really interested in the craft, I guess you could call it. Um, and with that third wave, people started, you know, finding coffee that tasted like specific, you know, like they might try and find coffee that, you know, tastes like apples or tastes like oranges and really just trying to, um, yeah, inject passion into the industry. And I, I think that sort of went along for a few years. And then, you know, the first entrance to the market is, you know, sort of with any um, movement, we're doing really well. And then a lot of people sort of followed them and didn't perhaps really realise that those first movers had so much passion and, and, and they just copied the model without having that um, that realness. Uh, and over the last, say, you know, 10 years, there's been a lot of people just entering it purely on a financial level rather than trying to enter the industry to give something or, you know, to, to add something to it. And that, that fakeness is starting to really show through now with, with a lot of people opening up and then closing down shortly thereafter because I think, I mean, maybe consumers don't, identify straight away um you know they might not be able to say oh this place is making money but they just it's i think they're just starting to break down so for us it's just always really important to not convey that we're um you know doing this turn a quick dollar like we're here to, to make a difference and we're here to just make different and to um add to the industry uh in our own you know unique way so dude i yeah, love it man thinking. I love what you're giving us. We're, we're, we're starting off on a good stride here. We, and then I love just the idea. I, I like to say, you know, those who we, we all owe something to those who came before us. Right. And uh, you know, they, yeah. they've done so much to, to provide this world. That's so, so abundant with knowledge and it's, our responsibility is to take what they've done and then to build onto it. And that's exactly what you're saying. We've got to add on. And uh, it sounds like that's what you're doing over at profile. And I, I can't wait to kind of dive into more current time, but let's set up the, the, the big picture for the listeners and kind of learn more about who you are, uh, what your background is and how you got to where you are today. So uh, graduated with a degree in business law. Take us to that point, man. Uh, how'd you, how'd you get into coffee from there? Yeah, I guess, um, Probably a pretty um, typical Melbourne sort of start in the industry where just, you know, was working at uni and had, you know, seven part-time jobs, making coffee here, making coffee there. Nowhere really um, that cared about what they're doing and, like, being honest, it was just, you know, making money so I could buy beers on the weekend. But then I think you started, you know, when you start doing something for a while and you work somewhere else and you're still working with coffee, you're like, oh, these guys are doing a little bit better. Maybe in my next job I'll look for somewhere and then you you know, you go a little bit deeper and so it was all at a time when I was studying and I sort of, I don't like uh, starting something and then not finishing it. So I was halfway through a, a business degree and thought, oh, I really don't want to be doing this, but I'm pretty close to finishing. So I should probably just stick it out. Um, so yeah, finished, finished the law degree and at the same time I was working, um, you know, at, at a few different places and then sort of finished and went full time at, um, a local roastery and just yeah 
been nonstop ever since. So originally, um, around this time, this transitional time for you, where you're realizing what you really love, not so much the law, the business side of things, more you're, you weren't sure if that was going to be your path, uh, which is kind of funny because it ended up being your path. Uh, you are in business now, maybe not business law, but I'm sure you're leveraging a lot of what you learned when you're in school. But what was it specifically about uh, coffee roasting in barista or uh, becoming a barista that really appealed to you? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with um, being a barista. I think that's sort of where it all started. I think it's it's a bit of a never ending um, a never ending quest. Like you never have a perfect service behind the bar. Like, and it's just that always, like, just always striving to do something a little bit better. You can always, um, and it's just one of those. I think for people that really care about what they're doing behind a coffee machine, there is always something that you can do a little bit smoother, a little bit more efficiently, a little bit quicker. You can maybe, um, there's always a little tweak that you can do in it. Like you've got a little bit of sort of, I guess, hospitality OCD about you where you do want to get the most and, you know, help people and serve people and make sure that people are leaving your shop happier than when they came in. There is always something extra that you can do. So I guess that aristocraft captured me because I was like, I just want to be a little bit better. I just want to be a little bit better. And then with that, um, I think you sort of max out at some places that you work with and you're like, I'm, uh, this sound, probably sounds a little bit arrogant, but like I'm too good for this place. I care too much and they don't care. So then you move up the chain, you go to a place that cares a little bit more about the coffee and it's just was sort of step by step um, with that coffee making until I guess I got to a point where um, – uh, I wouldn't say I've definitely learned everything, but was comfortable, you know, with my skills behind the machine and that perhaps my passion need to be expanded, which is sort of when I got introduced to roasting and a company that I um, used to work for said, hey, and this is sort of while I was studying, they said, do you want to come back and roast for us? So went back and, and started roasting for them while I was studying and that was just a real eye-opener. Uh, with roasting, like all the variables and factors that you're playing around with um, behind a coffee machine just pale into insignificance when you start roasting. It's just so much more. So that was just uh, like, yeah, you know, like behind the machine, you're trying to make your shot yeah. up for, you know, between 30 and 32 seconds and behind, you know, like you stuff one shot up and you waste, you know, 30 cents of coffee. It's like you stuff and roast up and throwing away between 100 and 500 dollars worth of coffee so i think that was sort of the, the journey of that um yeah wanting to be able to explore flavors rather than um practices and techniques so what i love up to this point and it's i think it's one of your if factors which is a question i'll ask later is already starting to shine through and that's that desire to always be growing always to be doing a little bit more always trying to take it to the next level uh, which is something i think you're either born with or you i mean i think you can develop that habit over time but it sounds like that was just one thing that you had uh, innately about you and i'm curious uh when you went so it sounds like this the one location you left you uh you went to uh compost coffee carlton after that is that yeah, Campos. Yeah, yeah. Campos. Um, okay. And yeah, and they're great. And they're um like they've got a it's, it's quite so before that I was at um St. Ali and they so I was sort of, you know, working behind the machine there and that was my first um I'll just go back to that one because it was my first sort of foray into like, you know, what the um Your first experience into baristing. Uh the the one thing I'm really yeah. curious about though, Zach, is when you're at uh Campos 
Am I saying it correctly? Is it Campos? Campos? Yeah, camp, Campos. Campos. Okay, yeah. sorry. When yeah. you're at Campos, um, you spent 10 months working there as a barista before uh, going to become a production roaster, uh, which you spent a year at. So what? take us more to the... the you know, as close, I guess, to like 200 feet. We've been at kind of like 30,000 feet. Let's go down to like two, 500 feet now. Yeah. What was that transaction like? Were you getting bored? Were you kind of losing interest? Did, did your manager approach you? Did you approach them? Like really t- take us through that, that interaction where you kind of took it to the next level. Yeah, what actually happened is I, I left because it was the um, final year of uni and I sort of, again, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I said, I'm just not going to work here behind the bar. They, had a, they sort of wanted full-timers. Um, so... I left just to finish uni that last year, just put everything in it. And then halfway through that final year of uni, they came back and said, hey, we just need someone for um, what started off as eight months and turned into a year because they were upgrading their roaster. Um, so they approached me and I'd always wanted to get into roasting. Did like, you express that right. to them? Did they know that you, you, you had an interest uh, in roasting? I don't think so. But I, So they were in the position where they had a small roaster and they were upgrading to a, a bigger one and they just needed um, an employee eight months and there's a lot of I guess with roasting there's a lot of trust involved and knowing that you can leave an employee by the roaster and know that they're going to do all the things they have to um like it's very much a one-person job yeah so I think with me they're like look we know Zach he spent 10 months behind the bar we know he's a hard worker we know he's passionate about what he does like we don't have to worry about that side of the personality we just have to train the skills into him um, so I, I think that's, and I don't know whether I haven't spoken to him about it, but I don't know whether it was a, um, let's just have, you know, oh, we'll just call Zach and see if he's interested because Zach loves having too much stuff on his plate. So <laughs> they, they called me and I was like, oh, this is too good of an opportunity to turn down. So said yes and, and made it work. And that's how that all came about. So at this time, this is, uh, 2013 to 2014, just a year before opening your own coffee roaster was this a dream of yours to maybe one day open your own place or was you know when did that really start to creep up in the back of your mind like maybe i should do this for myself i think it like i've always sort of been entrepreneurial from a young age so i think it was always there in the back of my mind and i think roasting was always there in the back of my mind right from probably uh, i mean definitely Working as a as a barista at Campos um, and other places before that, it's sort of that if you're going to open your own place, you want to have full control of the product. And if you're not roasting it, someone else has control of a huge part of what makes that coffee taste the way that it does. So there was probably always that little thing in the back of my mind of, um, you know, if you're going to do this, you've got to open a roastery as well. Wait, and so then, before you go any further, why is it so important to have full control of what the coffee tastes like? You can get a, uh, um, a coffee from Colombia, say, for example, and depending on how you roast it, so whether you roast it, and just putting this really simply, if you roast it you know, short and um, you don't go very hot with the temperature or, or light, um, it's going to have more sort of like fruity and acidic characteristics, which some people love or if you roast really long and you put a lot more heat into it and you go darker, it's going to have more sort of like chocolatey um, nut characteristics. So having that sort of ability to affect the flavor in that way is, um, you know, is was important for me, but, and also going a step backwards, being able to choose what coffee 
um, from like a raw coffee perspective. So you know, being able to uh, be introduced to farmers and say, "Oh, we want to, you know, we want to buy your coffee," as opposed to sort of just calling up a wholesale coffee company and going, "What coffee have you got?" And they go, "Oh, we've got one from Ethiopia and one from Brazil and one from Colombia." It's like that's your choice. You don't get any say into how it's roasted. You don't get any. So sort of for me, it was like opening up your choices from a few to a lot and having real control over that product. Um, so for you, you just wanted that creativity, that that freedom to create and to really explore and to do, to feed your curiosity, it kind of sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very complex question because there's a lot that sort of goes around with ethics of sourcing, sourcing coffee as well. Um, you know, like, do you want to source coffee from only from women producers or do you want to only source coffee from, you know, one particular country or and if you're sort of relying on other roasters to bring that to you, you do lose a little bit of that um, control, I guess. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it goes so much further beyond the actual roasting of the coffee. It's the decisions you make and how that impacts other people. And it sounds like you wanted that freedom to really choose uh, the the you know, the, the, the social impact your rooster would have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that comes back to that sort of original um, um, line that I had at the start of wanting to, what you were talking about, about wanting to sort of add to the industry and wanting to um, contribute. And if you are just, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with using um, a coffee from a roaster and not roasting itself. We supply a lot of cafes and they use our coffee and they believe in what we're doing and they don't need that control and they do a great job um but for me wanting to have control of, of the real like direction of the company to really stand for something which is obviously something we'll go into i want to um, go into that deeper but before we really get into that i kind of want to yeah. set it up more chronologically uh going back to this when you're at campus and uh, they come back to you and they say hey we need a roaster in your mind are you thinking okay like they're going to give me the tools and knowledge the things i need to be successful in opening my own place was that going through your mind or is it just oh cool like i'm yeah. really interested in this no nah, absolutely 100 percent Okay, well, take us really take me through that that thought process. Were were you living intentionally at this point? You're like, all right, I'm going to spend X amount of time here, or I'm going to spend enough time till I learn X. Like, what was going through your mind? Like, how were you playing this out? Well, it was very sort of um, like the offer that they put forward was like, yeah, we're getting a bigger roaster. As soon as the bigger roaster comes here, we're going to be able to roast twice as much coffee, and we're not going to need you. And I think it was a bit of um, like we were both on the same page. They were like, we're basically going to give you all the skills, but then we're basically going to fire you in eight months. So at this time, uh, they had one roaster that was doing small yield. So they, they had a roast probably like they had two roasters, I'm assuming, and then you just needed somebody else to be there when the other roaster was taking a break? Yeah. So like they had a, um, a 12 kilo roaster and then like that was sort of running, uh, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. And then they just kept taking on more business. So that full-time roaster then couldn't roast anymore. So they needed a part-timer to come in on Saturdays and sounds like the roaster was getting roasted. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was, uh, I was great. Like, yeah, the amount of coffee that they put through that 10 kilo roast is just wild. And I still talk to people about that now. I'm like, Hey, we were doing this many batches through that roaster. They're like, that is just ridiculous. So I think there's a lesson in, embedded with this too, with just the importance of transparency. I mean, how, how significant was it to you that they came to you and said, Hey, we want you to, we're going to teach you these skills, but just so you know, in, you know, one year's time or 10 months time, you're out of a job. I mean, did that, how did that sit with you? Oh, it's perfect for me. Cause yeah. 
I wanted, I wanted to do my own thing after I finished the degree and that was sort of the, you know, impetuous to get that done quickly and finish it up. So for them to go, we're not going to need you in eight months, this is perfect, it's like out to be like, okay, well, you're going to fire me and I'm going to have to do something. Fire is probably not the right word, but you're going to let me go and then I'm going to have to do something else and I want to do my own thing. So there's not going to be as much bad blood as, uh, you know, hey, teach me how to roast, give me all the skills. Hey, thanks for the skills. I'm going to go start my own business now. Like that doesn't really play out very well. But I think um, there's just there's something to be said too, just the value of honest, transparent communication. Like this is this oh, is what yeah, you have that we need. Absolutely. We we know you're reliable. We know you're dependable. We we know you have an interest in this, which is probably the most important thing. You're going to push it. You're going to take this seriously. And uh, you know, they said they they have the goods, the the skills to teach you. And for you, it was a great opportunity. This is the direction you want to go. So um, at this point, when 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 Campos came to you and he said, "Hey, um, we're going to teach you how to do this," are you in your mind like I'm going to open my own place someday? And did you have a deadline? Is there a goal that you were trying to hit? Uh, not really. I mean, like, um, I guess it's sort of the first three months of roasting is very much just like well been introduced to a completely different world um so there wasn't really i think the initial thought of um i could definitely do this on my own was more that initial period was like wow there's a lot to learn here and then after that three month hurdle i guess my mind started thinking okay cool you you know you can do this um you know you've got a lot to learn but like could you do this for yourself how would that look and then um Definitely towards the end of that, like around that eight-month period, I started, you know, putting plans into place to open mine. What did that um, process look program. like of putting plans into place? It's a tricky one because um, you – it's like huge barriers to entry with a roastery. Like to get, um, you know, like you need to have a commercial gas supply. So getting that fitted is obviously a huge upfront cost. And then not only is there a cost, but it's a huge wait time. It can take up to three months to get, um, you know, gas supply fitted and it's another month to get it connected to the roaster. So uh, I sort of, uh, during that time, was talking to other smaller roasters. Hey, how did, you know, how did you set up? How did it go? What went wrong? What went right? What would you do differently? Just having those sort of, um, those conversations. And a lot of the feedback I got was if you can get it done in six months, um, you know, You've done you've done a good job. If it takes in nine months, um, that's reasonable. But you know, well done. If it takes longer than nine months, then you probably need to do something different. So, so just head, to, like, just to be clear uh, to get it done. You're talking about actually like the concept to like open signs on. Yeah, well, I guess like first roast is bad. You know, like first sell roast. So. Just, you know, trying to find a lease, uh, get the gas installed by a roaster, get the roaster commission. Like there's a lot of um, hoops that you've got to, like regulatory hoops with um, this compliance that you've got to jump through. Um, Why is the time so significant? I'm curious. I just cut you off again. I apologize. Oh, no, I think it's just there's so many. So like, I can't even really remember the gas, um, I call it incident, because it's just I just blocked that in my mind because it's just so horrific. But like where we are here... You have to, there's like one company that manages the gas line. There's another company that organizes um, the gas to get the pipes to get installed. There's another person that hooks the pipes up to the actual gas lines. There's another person that installs a meter. Then you have to get another plumber to come out and connect the lines to the meter. And you've got to get another person that comes out to connect the lines to the roaster. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, like, <laughs> they don't, like, you can't, 
like they've all got different certifications. So you, there's no one that has them all and that can do the one job. And of course you can't do one job until you do the next job. So, you know, one person doesn't come and then that pushes the next person back. And then one person goes away on holidays and then one person's part of a, you know, a government company and they're like, we'll get to it when we'll get to it. <laughs> it's just like, you just feel like you're just chasing your tail and no matter how hard you push sometimes, people are just like, just chill. We're going to get it done when we get it done. So how many months did it take you to get it done from concept to I'm, I'm going to do this to actually doors open? Uh, so for me, it was uh, very close to six months, like a week short of six months. Wow. From, from that, and that's sort of from signing a lease or agreeing with the landlord um, on terms and conditions. So like, you know, if we wanted to go back further than that, um, you know, when we had the branding done and all of that sort of stuff, it'd probably be closer to nine months from, okay. Um, I, I guess if you tracked it from when did I spend the first dollar on the business, it would be around nine months. So from, that's from that to, yeah. So you were at the tail end by, by the, the standard or the guideline you gave us, you said on the, the, the edge of nine months, it's taking too long. Yeah, or more like 12 months is too long, but nine months is like, nine months is reasonable. Okay. Like, you haven't done anything wrong if it comes out in nine months. Okay. Like, if you got it done in six months, well done, you got it done quickly sort of thing. So uh, what what made you think you hit your goal? Was that your goal to do, what was your goal when you were thinking, can you, can you do this in, in six months or are you aiming for like the seven to nine month mark? I think I was like, I was aiming for three. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a big lesson in that. I mean, always, you know, it, it, always try to do it. It's always going to take longer than you think, right? So just be ready yeah. for that. And I mean, you are also, you, one thing that you did really well, uh, which is incredible that I think we should all have this courage to approach other business owners and start asking questions like, how did you do it? What were your challenges? And just start digging start, you know, figuring it out because even, I mean, the, even each community is a little bit different. So there's going to be, you know, curveballs behind each community. So really just get in there, start talking to people, find mentors. What were the biggest lessons you learned during that time of just researching and talking to people? Yeah, uh, a, a lot. Um, I guess uh, yeah, one of the major things is some people will talk to you and some people won't. Um, and that's a real, I think that's a real issue in any industry, I think the more that um, the more that we can share, the better is my sort of view. And I understand there's obviously, you know, we are competitors and we're competing against each other. But there, there definitely the lesson in that is okay. Some people are going to help you, and some people, some people aren't going to help you. Some people even lead you in the wrong direction. It's probably uh, did that happen to you? Uh, probably not. There's sort of bits of advice that were misleading is what I would sort of say. And, like, it's hard to um, say whether that was, you know, maybe that was just their experience. But, like, you know, I'd probably talk to five or six people and one of them said, oh, yeah, just put on, you know, just put on gas bottles and you'll be up and running in a month. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then everyone else was like, don't put on gas bottles um, if you just create all sort of, like, headaches for yourself. So, uh, again, like, it wasn't really, like, deliberately steering me down a path but i think if, like people are selective with um what sort of information they give you sometimes and i think that was a, a lesson to be probably a little bit more eyes wide open well i mean um, yeah take everything with a grain of salt maybe he thought he or she thought he 
they're giving you good information, but I mean, that's why you should go to multiple people and then you'll see the trends of what, you know, the, 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 the recommendations that come up more often is probably the recommendation you want to take. Um, what was the best information you got during that time? Um, definitely the timeline, like just talking to people about, and I think like coming back to that three months, like, you know, like I was aiming for three months, but realistically in the back of my head, I knew it could take nine months. Um, so if I hadn't have spoken with people about that and hadn't had those conversations, then I would have been like, I probably would have tried to get it done in three months and then going out and not made it in the end. So, so what's your advice for staying on track and, and staying proactive and what can we do to make sure we hit our mark? Oh, it's going to be ruthless. Yeah. Um, so in the end, what I ended up doing is calling like a, um, the ombudsman for, for one of the industries because this person was this section of the process took um, way longer than what it really should. And I think that like as soon as I called them, it got done within a week. So I think that the, the lesson is like, don't be afraid to escalate. Um, you know, if someone's not doing the job, go above them, you know, or go around them or just, you know, if they're getting in your way for where you want to get to and you can go around the, the issues that they're causing, don't be, just do it. Like don't even, don't weigh it up. Cause I, you know, I waited six weeks before I did that. I should have mm. just done it after the first week. Would have saved myself, you know, significant time. So one thing you mentioned briefly during these early days, during this, this, uh, I think like this nine month period, uh, you put a lot of thought into the branding. Uh, were you doing a lot of research at this time? Were you really learning about branding and the significance of branding? Can you share anything with us on that regard and how you developed your brand? Um, like, out of all honesty, it took, it really took two years for us to sort of find, um, our calling. Like, uh, the initial, initial branding and initial identity was based around a lot of things that we still stand by, um, honesty and, and integrity, um, being two of them. They, they were there from day one and they'll, they'll be here forever. But as far as sort of like exactly where do we want to fit within this industry? It took two years and I think that was a lesson in itself. Sort of how, you know, there's so many roasters um, in the world, if not, you know, in Melbourne. So I guess that, that initial journey was just sort of creating um, creating a, a brand that represented what I, represented my passion and, and the attributes that I wanted it to have, but it didn't have, it definitely did not have a clear vision. Like I can look back at it now and go, it was just another Melbourne roaster. Um, and it really took two years for that sort of identity to, sh- to show through. Um, I guess the one thing with the branding and that I was always firm on was the packaging had to be unique. Um, and that was just from, you know, just talking to a lot of people. People always, you know, whether they know anything about coffee or not, can look at a bag of coffee and go, that looks cool or, you know, that looks not very good or like, oh, I'm going to buy that coffee. So, there's always a huge focus on let's make sure we design packaging that is unique and eye-catching and makes people want to pick it up and makes people want to buy it so that we can then talk to them about what's inside it. So um, I'm curious real quick, what are some like little tricks of the trade that you can give us on how to make your packaging unique and stand out? Um, go with the really good design company. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we like we worked with someone um, called Hungry Workshop, uh, and they did they did all our branding and did all our packaging. 
And I, I think more than anything, so I, and I met with probably four or five different um, design companies. They were the ones that I really felt they understood my passion. I think you broke up a little bit there. You said you went with four or five different design companies and they understood. Who was it that understood? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Hungry Workshop okay. is the design company. Yeah, they, they really understood what I was about. Um, and I just, like, it wasn't, um, I didn't feel like they were trying to sell me. It was sort of like to get, to get what you're trying to do in a very crowded marketplace. So I think there was a lot of trust there, which would be in my advice, is to, to work with a design company that you trust um, and that you feel Got to talk to multiple people, and you I broke up again to hear a little bit. Of Zach, you said, you, you said oh, uh, sorry. no, it's all right. You said go with a design company that you trust is the last thing I heard, and then you broke up a little. Yeah, so, so they trust you and, and understand you, um, and uh, yeah, they did a lot of research into what um, what I wanted the, the brand to be like. Um, just trying to go back that far no it's it's really interesting i'm taking notes as you go and one thing i picked up on recently the brands that are doing the best out there aren't trying to be something um they're trying if anything if they're trying to do anything is to get clarity about who they are in you know what they're in it sounds like as you were trying to develop your brand you're really trying to get at your the clarity of what your core values were and you said from the very beginning the reason why I'm, i'm picking up on this you said your brand was about honesty and integrity those aren't things that you think of when you think of an object or a breath like a, a brick and mortar those are things you think of when we think of a, a person and I, I think that's so so important today when you're thinking of your brand or your concept don't think of like x you know uh, external things think about internal things there how, how am i going to create something that that you know pulls at the strings of the heart of other people what, what's the reason what, what is it that you know how can we what's the word personify this brand you know and it's not and it sounds like yeah, this is just an extension of who you are yeah, yeah, I, you, yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself. It's, and I think that really just ties into having a real connection to the product, uh, which is something that we really strive to do uh, up, up the chain, so that we have a connection to the farmer, and that we have a connection to the person buying the coffee, so that we can communicate all the extra details. Um, because it is for us, it is more than just um, beans in a bag. It's the story of how they got from. Um, you know, origin all the way through the roaster and what we did with them and then they got them in the bag and then we got them to you. So I think the, those, um, yeah, personified traits were really important to communicate how much there is behind each coffee. Mm. Man, I love this. So let's bring it back to what you shared with us earlier, which is the, you know, third way coffee uh, is really about taking where we got with, uh, you know, so the first wave was like your drip coffee, right? I'm assuming the second wave was more barista style, like craftsmanship. And then third wave is really taking it to the next level. This is where people are getting creative and adding on. So take it from there and then kind of talk about how that concept of adding on ties into the two years that you developed your brand and how this whole process of third wave for you is just kind of, it sounds like it was just you developing that clarity on what your mission was, what your mission with profile is. Is that safe to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely to a degree, I think sort of, um, like we, so like Campos and, and San LA are definitely part of that third wave. Like they're bringing in unique coffee and 
it's about sort of exploring, uh, I guess, um, there's, there's a lot of different opinions on what it actually is, but um, for the sake of sort of keeping it simple and consistent, it's sort of, it's about the, the boutiqueness um, that can exist and the sort of unique um, characteristics that coffee can possess rather than a mass market approach. Uh, and, and I always wanted, like it was always going to be profile, we're always going to fit um, within that wave purely because we're just passionate and wanted to explore and get more out of it. And it was never going to be um, a mass market product. It was always, it always will be a niche um, product. So, um, yeah, I guess part of that journey in the first two years was learning how to source coffee um, and learning how to roast it differently and how different origins um, work together. Like what happens if you put a Colombian and a Brazil together in a blend? What happens if you put a Kenyan and an Ethiopian in a blend? Like what happens um, if you add milk to it? All those sort of, um, I guess, uh, finer details and really just trying to narrow down flavour profiles of, of the coffee was, was the real was one real part of that journey um, in the first two years. And then so I could call that the sort of the product development um, side of things. And then the other half of that was sort of what why are we different? Why why are we here? What are we trying to add to this industry um, that someone's not adding? Um, which yeah, it took a long time because there's a lot of people and uh, a lot of roasters saying that they're all doing the same things. Everyone's doing single origin coffee. Everyone's doing specialty coffee. Everyone's locally roasted. It's all boutique. It's all fresh, um, which is all things that we stand by. And I think it was a really hard journey going, where do we fit? What, what, why are we different? And that was the sort of feedback that we got from everyone. It was like, oh, so what do you guys do? It's like, oh, we're you know, boutique and locally roasted and small batch. It's like, oh, yeah, just like that other company and then someone else said, oh just like that other company so i think that that first few years was a real journey to go okay how are we going to be different mm. so sounds like just to summarize the, the that two-year period is really you're trying to you're you're exploring with different profiles different flavored profiles trying to to create a flavor a product that was truly unique and broke out and stood out of the market but beyond that what are your values how, how are we doing something what beyond just a flavor but you know, what is it that is about us internally that's different? Um, so I guess take us through both of those, those really dive into deep. Like, how did you get your own profile when it comes to the product, the brand? I mean, obviously tasting, trying different things and tasting, but were you getting feedback? Like what guided you on what to say? Like, this is our, this is our flavor. This is our profile. This is, this is our uniqueness. How did you like end up there? Yeah. I mean, the, um, it's sort of like one led the other really in the end and uh, the the coffee always tasted great. We always bought, well, we always bought um, you know, some really good coffee and there's a lot of time that went into sourcing um, really great tasting stuff. So that was, it was never like everyone was always um, complimentary on, on the flavour. Like it was never really um, anything we learnt there. It was always good feedback. So, so like, okay, well, we're doing that right. Um it's really the other half that sort of needed work on. And I kept, you know, we'd buy a coffee from one farm and we'd buy a coffee from another farm and sort of we just float along with this, just buy this and see how it goes, just buy this and see how it goes. And in the end it was sort of a discussion that I had with the supplier around uh, traceability of, you know, 
can you send me some more information on this coffee? And the information came back that was like there's 80,000 farmers that contributed to this lot. Um, I can't really give you anything other than that. And for me, that was a sort of a little bit of a kick in the teeth of like, I've got this great tasting coffee, but all I know is it's from Rwanda and 80,000 farmers contributed to it. And there's so many variables. Like, how do you recreate that consistently? Yeah, well, I I started to become like, what, what story do I tell about this? Like, when someone asks me about this coffee, what can I tell them? And that, that was it. It was like two sentences and I'm done. I'm like, I've got, I need more than this. Like, how, how am I communicating all those um, traits that we talked about before when I'm like, I've only got two things to say about it. So really so what you're trying real. to do at this point is, is you, you're trying to write the story behind the coffee. You're trying to really help. You want to make your guest connect with the coffee through the story, but you couldn't, you couldn't tell the story. Yeah. I mean, there was no, it was sort of like, yeah, there was no story to tell or, you know, there were 80,000 stories to tell, but they didn't know any of the stories. So from there we went, okay, we need to tell a story. If we need to tell a story, uh, how do we do that? And it was just super clear that we could only source coffee from single producers. So there was no area blends um, and, and an area blend is sort of, if you picture, um you know, one region of a, a town that all produces coffee, they might only produce half a bag. A farmer might only produce half a bag, so they all get blended together. And just had that sort of 80,000 farmer lot um, comes into existence. So we went to the opposite end of the scale and said, we're only going to buy coffee from a farmer that can produce enough coffee for us to buy. So whether that's, you know, 10 bags or 20 bags, um, we're only going to buy it as a single producer. And that way we know, okay, this came from... Um, you know, Rodrigo and tell me about Rodrigo. Rodrigo's got, you know, three kids and they're, you know, two, three and four years old or whatever the story is. His father was in coffee. He's, uh, he's been doing it or, he's, you know, he's just playing around or whatever that um, story was about that farmer. It was only from one person. We get the whole story. Mm. So that was a pretty sort of clear cut um, decision that once that came about, it's like, that's what we're doing. So no. So when you earlier, you said the biggest lesson you learned was on the sourcing. And that was the biggest challenges was sourcing. What you meant by that was getting the story behind the coffee and really telling the story through the coffee is what you meant by the the challenge of sourcing. Yeah. I mean that, that again, is so many facets to sourcing. Um, that was was definitely one part, like to be able to, yeah, get that story behind it. Um, along with that, there's also sort of like, um, you know, you've got to make sure you're, so some, uh, as a very sort of, um, easy example, some coffees will, uh, degrade in flavor and some might last for three months, some might last for six months, some might last for nine months and, it's just by fluke that the first few coffees that I bought were all longer lasting um, coffees. So when I bought them, they didn't really degrade in quality. And then I, I bought another coffee thinking, okay, cool, coffee lasts nine months or whatever it was. And then that was a coffee from Brazil and it just died after two and a half months. And then I had another three months of this coffee. So just, when you say it died, does that mean from the time that you roasted it, the, the shelf life? Oh, no, just the, the actual flavor of... Um, the the quality of the bean when it was coming to you, yeah. So like it's a it's a raw product essentially, and it's like 
you know, he brought this Brazil and was like, I, I remember it distinctly, it was amazing. It was like milk chocolate and stone fruit were the, the notes that we were giving in. It just had this real, like it added, um, you know, hot milk to it. And it was just this beautiful, sweet, round, balanced cup. And I was like, that is delicious. So I bought, you know, six months worth of this coffee that we were going to put in, in one of the blends that we have. And for whatever reasons, you know, the, the moisture content and the density of that coffee just meant that the cell structure degraded. And then we started to roast it and we just lost all those sweet milk chocolate characteristics and it ended up tasting like wet cardboard. So it was basically, it was the process of purchasing and storing that didn't play well with the beans. So you have to learn how, what, and what volume to purchase. Like how long will this last good while, or how long will this be at this quality while it's with me? These are all variables you didn't consider back then. Yeah. I didn't even know about it. And, and I like, it wasn't really my job to know about that as a production roaster at Campos. Like my job is to turn up, roast the coffee. So I mean, this is just the, the natural evolution of mastering your trade. These are the variables you don't consider when you're really just getting started. Uh, but it seems like the, the biggest lesson I've, I've taken from this so far uh, is just the, the, the significance of you know getting the story behind the brand and really dive in, like summarize why that story is so important to not you know not just for the actual values of in the the, the 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 reasons why we should source from local farmers and to you know put our money and try to help you know the small guy out but like what is it exactly that's going on there that's so significant so for us the importance of getting it from a single farmer means we can be fully transparent with what that farmer got paid how much they produce and then tell their story as well and then we can also go back to them the next year and say, we bought your coffee last year, we want to buy it again. And then the story continues of, hey, this coffee is better this year, why is it better? They had better growing conditions or they improved um, structures on their farm. And it helps us go, okay, they're getting, we're supporting them, they're getting better, we're going to keep buying their coffee. Also, if they have a really bad growing year, it allows us to go, hey, we bought from you last year, we love what you're doing. Um, sucks that you had too much rain or, you know, there was a storm just before you had to harvest and you lost 80% of your crop. It happens, you know, not regularly, but it does happen. And then without that connection to the farmer, the farmer's just left there basically ruined because, you know, there's no, no one there sort of saying, hey, we're with you in the good times and the bad. So for us having that connection to the farmer goes, for us it's it's more... It's more than just buying good coffee. It's about having a relationship with that farmer and going, we're here, we're here with you when you're good. We're here with you when it's bad. And building that relationship because you're only as good as your suppliers. And for me, that's the sort of like we want to communicate that um, we need to be thinking about this long term rather than just buying what's best in any current season. How does that translate to the business end and, and your, your consumers, your, your guests uh, and their loyalty to you. Yeah, I think it, it adds, it definitely adds integrity because it's something that we can then talk about, which then builds, um, you know, a lot of brand loyalty, like people will go, Oh, you know, we're happy to buy from profile. And it, I think it also adds that sort of when we have coffee that doesn't taste quite as good as it did last year, for example, we can tell the story. We say, "Hey, look, this farmer had a really bad year, but we bought for him anyway because 
it's just a one-off in five years. And if we don't buy from him this year, he might not grow coffee again. And then we're not going to get that amazing coffee that he can have. So telling that honest story of like, you know, you come in to buy a bag of beans, for example, and I say, hey, this coffee is not as good as it was, um, you know, six months ago or a year ago. And automatically like, why are you telling me your product is not as good? I think it's just so honest. And then being able to tell that story behind buying this for a good reason. And don't get me wrong, like, it's not that it tastes bad. It just doesn't taste as incredible as it may, may have six months ago. So creating that really honest dialogue with the people that buy your product means that they'll trust trust you. Why? Why is that so powerful? Really, do you know the psychology behind that? Do you, can you get to like the you know? Is, is it, I mean, I'm sure you're not trying to play like psychology tricks on your your guests, but like like do you know what's working there in the background? Um, I guess I mean like I, I, I there's probably a lot of bullshit in the industry. A lot of people saying things that aren't quite true, and I think as consumers become more and more educated, they're starting to realise when they're being told a lie. And I'm not going to ever, you know, like if our coffee doesn't taste good, I'm going to tell you it doesn't taste good because I'm going to be the I'm going to be the first person to know that. So I guess it's it's built around more than. Um, just giving you something that tastes great. It's, it's about that story and that connection and, hey, we're actually doing something really powerful here, not just buying the best of what's on offer at any one time. It's the difference. Uh, of, sorry, keep going, keep going. No, I just said that answer the question. I don't <laughs> Yeah, it does. You know, and it's really, and I'm right there with you and I'm sorry, I just try to keep going deeper and deeper. I mean, really what it is, it's the difference between between being a transactional organization where everything that you do is based off of a transaction and being transformative where you're making decisions based off of how you're going to transform other people. And we have gone way too far away from those transformative relationships where we make our decisions based off of how it's going to impact others. Uh, and there's, I think that we're, we, uh, our, our generations today are, are, are starved, frankly, of that sense of transaction relate or trans transformative relationships. We, we, we want, yeah. we want to be, we want to matter. We want to know that our money is making a difference. We want to know that our, our, our purchasing decisions are, are making a difference and we're helping other people. We, we, we can't do that as easily as we used to. I don't know. No, and I think everything is becoming so, you know, fast paced. It's, it's, there is a, a huge culture with, um, you know, and I, I think social media has obviously, driven a lot of that as well there's this culture of I want it faster I want it better I want it cheaper I want it now at all expenses <laughs> sorry so that at all expenses yeah and I it's sort of I, I think it's gone down that direction and now you know that's having some real adverse effects um you know like we have a lot of one dollar coffee here from service stations and it's really not good and I think it's starting to turn around and people going oh hang on Where's that money going? Why? What's, we what's really that? dive in. What are these adverse effects? Give me specific examples of why it matters. Yeah. So like one clear one is um, speaking to someone else in the industry about this is that like those companies that are selling uh, really cheap coffee are, are basically buying coffee from farmers below the cost of production. So those farmers are actually losing money every year. And that just might be that like, 
they couldn't sell their coffee and then these big multinational companies come in and go, oh, I see you've got X amount of coffee there. No one's buying it. And then the farmer goes, yeah. They're like, okay, well, we'll give you this low amount for it. And it sort of pigeonholes the farmer because they haven't got an option. They want to sell their coffee, but they're trying to make money. And it's just like that's one clear example of like that's not good because if it happens to the farmer one year or two years or three years in a row, they just go, stuff this. Like, why am I going to keep producing coffee if I'm not making money from it? Mm. So it all becomes about the bottom line. Eventually, it it all just comes down to the bottom line. Yeah. And like, there's obviously, you know, like, People are in business to make money, don't get me wrong. But I think like we're trying to have um, – we're trying to create a business that's more than just money. Like one of our other um, slogans is we love to make coffee, not money. Mm. And that's sort of like we're not, we're not driven by we're a, by a profit. We're driven by creating really meaningful relationships. I love it, man. Which I think should, should happen in more – more industries, and I think it is happening. It's just harder because we have to pay more for that. You know, we have to pay more for the product, and it might take longer to get, and it might not be as consistent as um, as something. And just re- start really starting to reframe people's minds and go, just start to care about the products that you buy from anything from clothing to you know to um, you know the meat that you buy at the supermarket or the groceries, and just try to understand the story behind what you're purchasing and, and who that's affecting. And yeah, Zach, this has been great. Is there anything that you're hoping we would discuss any advice that you have that you, you didn't get a chance to get out before we moved to the speed round? Uh, no, I think we've, we've touched on a, yeah, we've touched on a lot of things. We'll probably keep talking for another 15 hours. But. <laughs> probably, man. And I really love making an example of you and your values. And I think, I mean, you, you just, you laid it all out there. I mean, I, I have nothing to add to it. It's clear, you know, the takeaways we've gotten from this conversation. So uh, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. (laughs) Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. 
With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 866 Mention Restaurant Unstoppable and receive 10% off your first three months. And say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. We're back. The first question I have for you is, what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, Transparency. What is your biggest weakness? Being too honest. How does that hurt you? Uh, People have uh, questioned, you know, if we're only paying $15 kilo for... um, grain coffee, why are you charging me $15 for um, 250 grams? So just um, lack of understanding of the complete um, process, really. So I guess like explaining, explaining that process is uh, comes down to us saying, well, you've got to think about um, all the factors that mean that we've got to charge $15 for 250 grams when we only paid that for the kilo. So, yeah, it comes back to us explaining to customers why things cost what they do. So I'm curious, once you've explained it to them and you've educated them, how do they react? Or did they handle it well or do they get even more angry or do they say that's all bullshit? Like, how do they react? Some are like, wow. So, you know, and I'll go down to um, as much as saying we only make $5 on this bag. And as soon as we get to that, some people are like, oh, you need to charge more. And some people are like, well, $5 is a bit much. And at that point, I can go, okay, you're quite clearly not the right customer for us, even though I've just told you our whole story. And then the people are like, you need to charge more for that. I'm like, we need to work with you. So it comes down to sort of picking your customers, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's a key part right there. A lot of people, when they they choose not to go down the path of most resistance (laughs) uh, because it's the right thing to do, Um, it's usually because they're not willing to explain in, in educate the guests. I think that we are in a position right now because you know, the, the issue with food values is going in such a bad direction. Like it's our responsibility to take the time and educate our guests and really use these opportunities to say, this is the reality of it. Like this is what real food costs. And I want to give you the best and the best cost for these reasons. Uh, and that's, and, and be willing to, you know, to educate the guests. Most people aren't, would you say it's true? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I think with that, you've got to be willing to share details that other businesses wouldn't share, like share your profit margin. And then I understand. Complete transparency, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Which is a hard thing to do for some people to say, we only make this much money on this bag. Yeah, why do you think that's so hard? It's supposed to be a speed round, but don't Uh, mind me. I like this conversation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I, I guess it probably comes from a lot of people overcharging. And if they're charging too much for a shitty product, then people are going, you know, like the opposite is like you're charging $15, but maybe the bag only costs them $3. It's like, that's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. So maybe the stem is from dishonesty rather than honesty. 
Hmm, I like it. Uh, I don't like that. That could be true, but I like your transparency in telling us this. <laughs> uh, what is one thing you look for, uh, a question you ask or a quality you look for uh, when you're recruiting your team? Uh, what do you stand for? What are, your, what are your morals? What are your ethics? What are you looking for? Just alignment in your own? Uh, yeah, well, I think more than just thought about it, like, um, like you know, the team here all care about the coffee that we source and they care about the food that they eat. And it's more, I think, you know, coming back to all those points that we've touched on, it's um, we want to we want to work with people and even the people that we wholesale coffee to, we want to work with we care about what they're doing. Beautiful. And have, you know, have, have a reason for, for why they're doing it. I love it. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Uh, trying to convince customers that they should spend more money on coffee whilst only having 15 seconds to convince them. Mm. How are you challenging or how are you overcoming that challenge? This is just uh, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure answer. Uh, we're trying. We're trying. We're just trying to start the conversation with a lot of people. Uh, like you know, we've talked about it for an hour today. We're trying to you know, often you've only got 15 or 30 seconds. So just trying to give people snippets of information one bit at a time is sort of what we're doing rather than talking down to people. It's just, you know, give them a little fact or get them interested, get them interested in the product. Hmm. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Uh, comes back to probably um, question three, which is, um, you know, do everything with, with honesty and integrity and care about what you're doing. Share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So this is something that's standard within your roastery and your uh, cafe, but not standard within the industry. Oh, that is a good question. Um, I mean, we never say no, but nothing is, is too much, like whatever they need. Um, you know, like I'll go out on a Sunday and deliver a bag of decaf to an old South customer. Like, what is one book that will make us better people or restaurant or cafe Operators. Oh, hang on. I've just got to get the name of it because I was just reading this yesterday. So Charlie Trotter. Have you heard of Charlie Trotter? Yes, I have. He's got uh, lessons in excellence and lessons in service. Both. Read both. What's the biggest lesson from one of those books? Oh, I think it's just like for me, it's um, people should leave. Uh, so before the, before they call it a transaction, before people come and talk to you about coffee or they order a coffee, they should walk out, uh, you know, either happier or more knowledgeable. So it's it's that concept of leave, leave, get the get your customer to leave with more than they came. Mm, awesome. Uh, what is one online resource or tool you're leveraging? Baristahustle.com. What is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant that has had an impact on operations? This could be making you more efficient, more profitable, uh, improving communication, any technology you're leveraging within your operation. Um, we use uh, a group communication. I'm just thinking about the right answer here. A group communication app called Slack. Um, so all the wholesale accounts are on it and then we can all communicate um, with each other um, really easily without having to get caught up in, you know, messenger or text messages. Okay. Uh, so give me a specific example of how you've improved operations. Are you 
like saving a certain amount of time, like really dive into how this has had an impact. Rather than having to scroll through text messages or if we did email ordering or like that, I can just, you know, scroll to the last week and go, hey, do you want the same amount of coffee as last week? And they go, yep. So you're just essentially centralizing your channel of communication. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. Okay. This is the last question. You ready for it? Cool. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your cafes would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom. Things you know to be true that you could leave behind for humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Uh, so first would be do what you do for, for a purpose. Uh, stamp something. Um, second piece of information would be ask, ask the hard questions because they need to be asked by someone and whether that's of suppliers or your boss or customers, uh, if they don't get asked, then people just won't do the right thing. And the third one would be surround yourself with good people. I love it. Zach, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your values. I think we're all just a little bit better after listening to you. Uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent operator, somebody you admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor on the show. Uh, I'm going to say a good friend of mine, Tori Bicknell, who's a chef um, and she's got more skills than you can believe. All right, Tori, look out. I'm coming after you and let the folks at home know how can we connect? If we want to follow you on social media, maybe he sends you an email if you're willing to give it out or just a website. Yeah, I mean, we're on um, Instagram pretty heavily, uh, Profile Coffee Roasters, and then www.profile.com.au is the uh, website, and there's links there to send me an email um, and get in contact by there. And this is episode 484, so just head over to restaurantsunstoppable.com slash 484, or Zachary with a C, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, Oaks, O-A-K-E-S. And you can find a summary of today's discussion, as well as links to the tools, books, all right there in the show notes. Zach, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, to share your story and your values, your recommendations. There is no questioning, my friend. You are unstoppable. Thanks, Eric. It's been great. Oh, it was my pleasure. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Thank you so much, Zachary Oaks. And man, I've really been enjoying my conversations uh, with the folks over in Australia, our, our brothers and sisters over the big pond. Uh, not the little pond, but the, the bigger pond there. Uh, and man, uh, again, um, I've said a bunch of times, thanks to tipsy. Uh, these interviews wouldn't have happened if I did not connect with tipsy and they did not connect me with a bunch of people over in Australia. If you haven't checked out tipsy, uh, you gotta, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's a great tool to surround yourself and your team members with the most talented, knowledgeable people in the industry. And the big lessons for me in today's conversation, uh, the things I want, I hope that you got from the, today's conversation. It's just the idea of creating a brand around your, your values, your beliefs, uh, 
and really being transparent about that, but then having values and beliefs that are so powerful, that are so just moving uh, that 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 brand who you are what you stand for resonates with people and you just create this truly amazing aura around you because of it and i think the other really cool thing about today's conversation is really just the power of story and knowing that people resonate with story and finding incredible people to tie your brand to uh in to make it about supporting these people and uh, being open and honest uh, and not budging from your values of supporting these people. Uh, it could be so powerful. And the other big part of this too, guys, we got to educate the guests. There's a lot wrong with our food system and it takes a really bold, passionate, uh, brave person to stand their ground and basically risk their business to not sacrifice those values. Uh, and the more of us that do this, the more of us that get on the same wavelength and have these similar values, the better the world's going to be. Uh, and really, it's hard. It's tough. I, I get it. Uh, a lot of people, they say, you know, that's just not sustainable for my business. I, I, we, I can't I can't put food on the table for my kids if I do this. I, you know, I understand it's hard and maybe this isn't for everybody. I get that. But for those of you who are passionate, for those of you who do have the values, who do want to make a difference, you know, really go after it. I encourage you to go after it, to stand your ground, to be open, honest, and transparent and make a difference. You, you know, you and uh, the rest of us will be better because of it. And uh, maybe this isn't the fastest way to get rich, but I truly believe in my heart of hearts that uh, you will find other rewards, other riches, other types of happiness. Uh, I'm confident about that. So anyway, great stuff today, guys. If you want to continue to receive these episodes, these stories of incredible people, please share this resource. Uh, That is the best compliment, letting others in our industry know that these stories, that this mentorship exists for them to absorb. And like always, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. You know how to connect with me, Eric, at RestaurantUnstoppable.com, Instagram and Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, and Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. I'm always looking to hear from you guys. I love your feedback. I love to know uh, how I can provide more value, so let me have it. Uh, I think that's it. That's all for today. Uh, Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.